Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Aaron Quick. Aaron is the co-founder and CEO of Pear Tree. With more than 20 years of global brand marketing experience, and more importantly, as a two-time adoptive mother, Erin is a leader in the movement to modernize adoption in the United States. Previously, Erin co-founded Stoke Strategy, a Seattle-based brand strategy firm, which she led for 12 years. She began her marketing career at Addison in San Francisco and New York, where she worked on global branding for Domino's Pizza, Merrill Lynch, and the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Erin is a recipient of the Puget Sound Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award, and most recently, Pear Tree, under Erin's leadership, was selected to participate in the 2021 Techstars Seattle Accelerator. She is currently a Visionary Voices member, speaker with All Rays, guest lecturer at Brown University and the University of Washington, and Erin lives on Bainbridge Island with her husband and two children. Welcome, Erin. So good to see you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We're going to start with some rapid fire. Um, <laughs> what I always ask this because selfishly I want tips, but what's your favorite movie? Oh, I mean, anything with Julia Roberts. Usually, oh, I love her. Or Jennifer Aniston. I'm a rom-com gal, just so I can oh, check. Oh, yeah. Like the Sleepless in Seattle vibe or, yeah. Oh, I love them too, the feel-good movies. So we've lived in the same cities, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, and New York. Oh, and I'm great. curious, which one's, are your, which one's your favorite? Um, New York in my 20s. Me too. Sure. I did New York I mean, in my 20s and 30s. I think everyone should, should do a stint in New York in your 20s. Um, but I think the reason I left New York so much was because when I first moved there, I was like, no one knows who I am. No one cares what I do. And then you hit a certain point in that city where you're like, no one knows who I am and no one cares about me here. So um, that's when I moved back to Seattle. So I don't know. San Francisco is a wonderful city too. It's a tough one, right? I couldn't do New York with kids. People yeah. that can do New York with kids. I'm, I'm in awe. I did New York with kids for five years. And then when it came time for kindergarten, we were like, wait, what? How do we do this? Okay. What's your biggest fear? Something to my kiddos. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I just, and also um, a, a plane landing in water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are you a good swimmer? No. Yeah. Well, that means you're probably scared to fly, which I never was. And now I'm becoming a little bit, I don't like being away from the kids on an airplane. Yeah. I and now I like, I cry when I'm flying without my kids. I'm like, what if? I get it. Um, okay. Are you water or mountains? Water. And who is your favorite female performer, like singer? Mm. Beyonce. Nice. Sasha Fierce. I love it. Mm -hmm. What have you watched or listened to or read over the past couple of years that you would recommend? Oh, favorite book by far in the last couple of years was Untamed, Glennon Doyle. That book changed my life a little bit. Yeah. But, well, know. it gives you that feeling that you were talking about in New York when you first get there of like, I can be and say and do yeah. whatever I want because I'm slightly anonymous. Yeah, and just that you have, like, especially women, like we have a wild inside of us that we tamper yes. or down and it's just like, don't do it. Don't, don't yeah. do it. Let your light be on and don't apologize for it. 
Okay, so tell me, where are you from? Tell me about your childhood a little bit. I grew up in Spokane, Washington. And what were you kind of into or passionate about when you were little? Um, sports. We were big time soccer players, both my sister and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of, I mean, but everything like softball or soccer, or volleyball, nice. all, all the sports. Sporty spice. Okay, that overlaps with me. I was, a, I was an athlete too. Okay. And tell me about your parents. Are they also entrepreneurs or kind of where did you get your entrepreneurial bug? Yeah, so uh, I guess kind of so my parents, um, both masters in public health from Berkeley and so, and super hippie. So ah, they, in Spokane, interesting. I would think they'd be in like Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, well, they're from Southern California and, um, but they, they lived in Guatemala for a long time and they were opening up clinics in Guatemala um, just to make sure plantation workers had access to you know, basic health benefits like flu shots. In fact, my sister was born down there and the village named her Ishmu Kane. Oh my gosh, this is the coolest. (laughs) So Ishmu Kane is is a Mayan goddess and she's the goddess of the earth. And so they left when my mom was seven months pregnant with me and moved to Spokane. Um, How did they land there of all places? My dad got another, it was like a health administrator job in Spokane. Yeah. Is he still, are they still doing that industry? Are they still in healthcare? No, no. So the reason that they ended up moving, I think they would have probably would have stayed in Guatemala for my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Oh no. Right before I was born. Oh no. I know. Yeah. It was pretty bad. And so, um, they moved to Spokane just, I think to be in the States and have access to better healthcare for him. And the good news is, I mean, he, he was given five years to live and he lived 14 years. And so, um, but so my middle name is also, I'm, I'm so chill. Um, which is a funny middle name to have. Wait, literally, I thought you were describing yourself as so no, chill. No, your middle, middle name is so chill. Oh my God. I'm not so chill, so that would not work for me. But are you so chill? You got the hippy dippy parents? I'm pretty, I, there's there's not a lot that'll rile me up, no. Yeah, I mean, I'm not chill, but I also am really good under pressure. So I get that, like, that's how you would describe yourself. But mm-hmm. I do feel like I've, I do relate, I guess, to a little bit of that hippie vibe. I have some of that in me for sure. Yeah. Interesting. And what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Oh, easily hands down an interior designer. Oh, (laughs) well, I can see you've got cool art behind you. Is that, do you have like an interior design flair in your house? No, if I could tour tour you around my house now, you'd be like, really? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, good thing you didn't pursue that. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to be that so badly. And then um, I just kind of waned when I got to college. Yeah, my daughter, my third born, put that in her fifth grade graduation. They asked everybody, she said, an interior designer in Hawaii. I'm like, sign me yeah. up. That sounds so out already. And what were your family values? Like, what did you personally value as a kid? We grew up with like Zen sayings. Then Buddhist saying, so we kind of grew up with this and, and I still, I mean, I use it today, but I, and I taught it to my kids now, but it's kind of, it's four phrases that were just drilled into us who show up, meaning like be present, pay attention, tell the truth and don't be attached to the outcome. Oh my gosh. I love this. I've done, I think now maybe 160 interviews on this podcast And you're the first one when I ask about family values to be so clear and what a nice gift from your parents and a great gift as far as like generational um, clarity around values. That's awesome. And so how did you end up at Western Washington? how did you decide? (laughs) Um, So my high school had sororities in it. Oh, wait, what? What what high school? I know Lewis and Clark in Spokane. We were like, okay. I think my dad went there. I think that's where he went. L- L- okay. Yeah. L- you know, so we, L- had, we didn't have fraternities. We just had sororities. There's two sororities. And so I kind of lived the Greek system in high school. Oh my God. Your parents must've been like, what? <laughs> well, I they look back and I'm like, mom, what were you doing? Like I, they literally showed up like on, in rush week, they show up to your house, throw a pillowcase over you and, and take you off for all these like awful initiation events. And my mom was like, bye honey. <laughs> like, why would you let me, but anyhow, um, so anyhow, I, for me, I, I needed to go to a state school. We didn't, we didn't have a ton of money. And so it was like, um, UW and WSU, but they both had Greek systems. And I was like, mm, not really into it. And then <laughs> the honest answer is I picked Western because, um, it was close to Canada and the drinking age was 19. 
Oh my gosh, I love you. That's <laughs> hilarious. So like, and how do you feel now looking back and reflecting on that choice? Was that a, the right choice for you? No. In fact, I dropped out uh, my sophomore year. Yeah. And is just, that when you went to New York? Um, that's when I started working in Seattle. I was like, I'll just take some time off. Um, and so I started working. I, my very first job was actually at the Washington Athletic Club. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so I started filling in for somebody on maternity leave and I, I just loved work. Like the minute I started, yeah. working, I was like, this is where I need to be. Like, this is how I'm going to learn. Um, yeah. I loved making money. And my oldest is a junior. He's looking at colleges and I'm like the pressure on these kids these days of like the importance of what decisions you make. I'm like, you're going to be just fine. Gonna just, fine. it's going to be good. And he is a little bit in that mindset of like, shouldn't I just work? Because there is this correlation of like, unless you're going to like a school that's got some sort of crazy notoriety, like an Ivy yeah. that, that kind of parallels into some crazy industry or job, which people or tend alumni. to still, yeah. there's an alumni network. It's a little bit like, yeah, just get your ass to work, you know? So what did you end up studying um, that gave you kind of a foundation for such an amazing career? Oh, I mean, I just took the prerequisites when I was at Western just because, and, and the reason I ended up dropping out was because I got the note, like you have to declare a major. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I just yeah. want to go experiment with the world for a little bit. Yeah. So you so, did the Washington Athletic Club in Seattle. Yeah. And, and he, yeah. one of the members there, he, he owned an advertising agency in Seattle and he recruited me out of the whack. And um, he was like, please come work for us at the advertising agency. And so I started being, I was kind of the marketing coordinator for their ad agency. Is, that the, is that the Addison job? No, that was, um, it's not around anymore. It was Horton, Lance and Lowe, and then it evolved into HL2. Oh, okay. It was one of the big ones in Seattle for a number of years. And then it, um, it went out of business. I don't know. Yeah. And what, what type of role did you take there? And I guess, I mean, you ended in such a high profile branding role. Well, I was the marketing coordinator for the ad agency and I was there for about a year and, and the partner there was like, you asked too many, like you're, you're not superficial enough for advertising. You want to know why people are making the decisions they're making. And he's like, you need to go into brand strategy. And so oh. he was the one that kind of started, um, put San Francisco in my head. Like, if you want to be, if you want to be in brand strategy, you have to go work for one of the big globals in San Francisco or New York. Yeah. So he kind of got into my head and that's when I started interviewing for jobs in San Francisco and I landed at Addison, which was the very best place for me to land. And so what was the, pro I'm always curious, like the process of that. Are you sending your resume in cold? Are you working through networks? How did yeah. you get the job? That was, so um, that was cold resume. And I never paid attention to like, the, what are the requirements for the job? I've never paid attention to that. Because all of them at that time too, it doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. But all of them were required a bachelor's and something. So I was like, meh. Yeah. Um, so I I didn't bluff. Some, some companies. When I lived in New York and worked in New York for you know over ten years, uh, a lot of companies looked at. They said it's a requirement, and I was like, this person is a rock star, yeah. so efficient, so capable. And sometimes it's the story that matters, like why they dropped off. It's not like that correlates with somebody not being driven. So yeah. I agree. It's kind of mellowed because people are, the message is a little bit more around grit and attitude, For sure. um, but interesting. So you ended up there for years. I was there in San Francisco. I got down there, right. as kind of like dot-com boom was happening. It was so what, what years. Cause I was in San Francisco during the dot-com boom. Uh, 90, 99 to 2001. Okay. So it was like boom and bust. I saw. So you came right as I was leaving because I was there in 94 to 99. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you were there kind of like for sure, boom. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was recruiting. I mean, it was ridiculous because oh, companies okay. were like, there's a pulse. She's breathing. I'll hire her. I mean, there was such a war on talent, kind of like today. Yeah. But the companies were so cool and sexy to sell. Uh -huh. And candidates were just like, oh, yeah, I'll go on that interview. Like every company was so exciting. So And all the fun IPO parties. Oh, yeah. Like oh, the best. Oh my gosh, we lived similar lives. So then that company took you to New York because that's what happened for me. That's the well, coolest. Well, yeah, bust bust happened, and um, the company went from like seventy five people to like fifteen overnight. Oh and I remember I was sitting in the conference room, and they were explaining to the partnership was explaining what was going on and that they can't couldn't people on. And I remember being afraid I was going to be fired, and one of the partners leaning over and whispering in my ear like, 
you don't make enough money to be fired. <laughs> you're, not, you're not so expensive. You don't, it doesn't matter on the balance sheet so much. Yeah. yeah. And so they're like, do you want to stay on here? Or a little different than like you're indispensable, which is kind of what they were saying also. <laughs> the combo of your comp with your, you know, contribution. Yeah. So they offered me that you can stay here or we'll move you to New York and you can work out of the New York office. And you're like done and done. Yeah. That's not even a question adventure. What did you think about that culture as far as what you learned that you've been able to transition to your company? Oh, well, I mean, getting, I mean, understanding the fundamentals of brand strategy, not like, you know, logo veneering, but like the fundamentals of like building, like starting at brand values and what's the organizing idea behind us that makes us different, kind of the why and getting to see into the guts of all the companies that we worked with in terms of what works, what doesn't work, what, you know, where companies fail, um, where they do really well. I mean, it, that, to me, that was like the best education I could have received. Yeah. And so why did you ultimately leave? Well, so I went to, I was in New York for about five years and um, I was dating somebody really seriously and he was a born and raised New Yorker. And he had one of those, you know, giant, crazy jobs at JP Morgan. And he came home one day and said, we got to get out of the city. We, we can't live this life. It's just, it's too much. It's too, it's too crazy, too intense. And I was like, let's go to Seattle. So and you so, brought him here. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Within a so, month. We I'm like, sorry. Another correlation. I married a New Yorker and brought him here. <laughs> well, I didn't marry that New Yorker. I didn't marry that. New- well, I, I'm just saying the bringing of a human out of New York is like, that doesn't necessarily happen. My husband just got back last night and brought black and white cookies from New York <laughs> and bagels. Yeah. And I'm trying not to eat them, but my goodness, I do miss the food, the pizza, the bagels. So you didn't black marry that guy, cake. but it brought you back to Seattle. So that's our win. We got to inherit you back yeah. to Washington, but you made a big transition to the American Marketing Association. Um, how did that work? Well, I started actually worked. I was, um, I, I hopped on the board of the American Marketing Association almost as like a, I don't even know what the marketing scene in Seattle is like. And so I want to get to know everybody. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. And so, and it was fun. Like I, I got to do programming. So I got to bring in kind of baller people into the group and it was, that yeah. was really fun. Um, and nobody had been doing brand strategy and tons of advertising agencies here in town, but no one was doing like true brand strategy, except for this one guy, uh, in one graphic design firm that everyone in town told me to go talk to. And so and who's that? His name was Dave Miller. He's still, okay. he's still doing brand strategy in Seattle. And so um, he and I had the chance to work together for about a year before we decided to go start our own firm. And so in, yeah. in 2007, we started our own company called Stoke. Uh, that was yeah. I loved that in the intro and I was reading about it. And it's like, you just became after that founder, founder, founder. You're like, I am now the entrepreneur. Not intentionally. I just like, I never had this, like, I will be an entrepreneur one day. It's just kind of like, a, oh, I can do that. We should go yeah. do that. Well, I mean, if you look at your background, it really does match your risk profile. Some people never leave. Like, I'm sure you have friends from high school who are still in Spokane. And sure. you're like, I lived in San Francisco, probably not knowing a ton of people. Then I went to New York yeah. and I didn't, I did the same. And I look back, I'm like, well, that was just a no brainer. But a lot of people don't have that risk profile also to transition to being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I always, the risk in me, I, like, I, there's so few decisions in life that you can't walk back. That's how I, that's how I, yeah. Or just undo. Even that's what my message is to my son about college. I'm like, if you hate it, then you'll transfer. Like people do that. Yes. Yeah. And so tell me about that company. That was also, I mean, that was like an MBA. So he and I grew that for 13 years together and um, we started working Kind of unbeknownst to us, most of the advertising agencies in town asked us to be kind of their in-house strategy team when they were going and pitching projects. So that's how we grew. Uh, Copacino Fujikato, if you know that advertising agency in town, they um, they they housed us for the first year of our of our business, and then it's kind of off to the races. So yeah, so you were in a position to be creating revenue kind of early days, which helps. Yeah, we never we we never had a non-profitable month. That's amazing. So you ended up doing that for a little over 12 years from my notes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was the exit there? How did you kind of move on? So I sold my share to Dave in 2019. Mm-hmm. 
just because I, you know, small kids, we wanted to move out to an island and, um, you know, pre-pandemic, it didn't make sense in terms of the structure that we currently had. And so, and I wanted to focus on, on other things, including pear tree. Pear tree was kind of had been in my mind Yeah. because uh, while I was running Stoke, I was in my mid thirties and I was like, eh, we'll have babies later. My mom didn't have me until she was 42. So I just kind of, thought oh my gosh, that. 42. Yeah. That's hippies. Um, so I just, I delayed this idea of getting pregnant until it was just too late for us to do it naturally. My eggs got too old. Yeah. Um, we tried to get pregnant for about a year and nothing worked. And then, um, we went through the years and years and way too much money in all the IUI IVF junk. Um, and after my third miscarriage, I was like, well, both of us, my husband and I were like, we can't do this anymore. This feels like we're running up against a wall and just, and honestly, it just felt kind of broken. Like yeah. Physically that makes sense. And emotionally. Did you, where does pear tree fit in with facet? Facet was just, I couldn't let go of my brand strategy stuff. So it was yeah. just, you know, I, I ended up doing just some consulting stuff. So Facet was just kind of a little brief consulting brand strategy. Yeah. It's, it's a perfect transition for you though, to kind of take a deep breath, figure it out. Yeah. And then what I love is that the situation that so many women are in, and it's kind of um, not talked about until you meet someone else who's also gone through it. And then it's like a flood of conversations because it is... <laughs> such a crazy issue um I, I my friend jake i have to remember the name of the company they started a company that also addresses um infertility oh. puts companies um puts doctors it's like um yelp for fertility oh, i have cool. to look it up yeah but I, it was also a person who just kind of took lemons made lemonade and said mm -hmm. instead of being victimized by this whole thing which can be so traumatizing um you know, I'm going to find a solution for people who end up needing to take another route. Yeah. Well, so when we finally made the jump, like, okay, IVF doesn't make more sense. And we'd always said we wanted to adopt. And so when we made that leap into the world of adoption, you know, I was blown away. It's like taking, you know, a step back in time in terms of the process that is it's so antiquated. My friend went through it and was like putting together a book to kind of sell her family mm -hmm. and then was on the waitlist, 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 finally got a beautiful baby boy. The mother was in the room with them. Mm -hmm. And I was having anxiety as a person who's never been through it. Like, what do I do? What do I say? How do I help yeah. support her? But also I was panicking that the mom, once the baby was born, would change her mind. Because do. don't, they, don't yeah. they get a certain window? Because I've heard of that happening a lot. It happens 20% of the time and they do, depending on what state you're in, they have anywhere from 24 hours to 30 days. I think my friends was 30 days. I don't know if that's a Washington thing, but I think it was 30 days and I felt so anxious for her. It's like, yeah, that's, I, it I just can't imagine that heartbreak. Yes. And like the Buddhism part, I guess you have to not have the attachment have to, yeah. to, the out, to the outcome. You just have to kind of let it float by and let the universe kind of work its way through it. That's crazy. That was my mantra just again and again and again. So yeah. we went through we went through two two really wonderful adoption processes. Um, it's so wonderful, in fact, that I mean we so we used a different method of adopting called self-navigating, which we can talk about when we get into the pear tree stuff. But it basically means we don't use an agency. We we navigate it ourselves. We hire our own team, and we go connect with an expectant mom versus being introduced to one by an agency. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in the pear tree zone, so you okay. can um, you can expand on that because we have so much to talk about. I'm slightly fascinated, and I love that you're such an open book. It's um, yeah. I hope that lots of people listen to this podcast who need your voice. Yeah. So so when we got when we decided to make the leap and we jumped into adoption, we looked at all the options, and an or an adoption agency to use them is on average forty to sixty thousand dollars to adopt an infant in the U.S., which is what we wanted to do. Wow. And are you on the hook in like a down payment way? Big time. Yeah. And it's a lot of like upfront cost. That, that you're, you're not sure if there's going to even be a successful exactly. outcome. Yeah. yeah. And so that just felt, that felt strange to me. And because we'd spent, you know, $75,000 in IVF, we didn't, we weren't like 
raring to spend another 60 in this like weird antiquated method. Yeah. So we luckily had some family friends that told us that you don't have to use an agency, that you can build your own team. And so that felt better to us because we knew we would probably fight harder than anyone else would for us. Yeah. And but also, I'm sure that's expensive. No, if you do it that way, the costs drop from 40 to 60 down to on average 15. Okay. Still yeah. a lot of money. I mean, if you think Still about families that are like in your situation that can't afford it. Um, so my understanding is that it's a platform for families and expectant mothers, and I'm curious how exactly it works and what the business model is. Yeah. So, um, for on any adoption journey, there are three major milestones that, you know, according to today's standards, we actually see four major milestones, but yeah. the way they work is if you're an adoptive family, the first step is you have to be approved to adopt. Um, and that is this paperwork laden administrative who filled awful process mm-hmm. you have to be approved in your state and so each state has different requirements uh, and then the second milestone is you have to match so adopting family and expectant mom have to connect and like each other and want to move forward and then three is you go through a legal process Interesting. and so what we do is we just take we we have services so we on you know step one we created the first and only online home study that maps to state requirements so people can get approved online in a much more streamlined, much more enjoyable way via pear tree. And then matching, which is step two, that's if you think about online dating, it's very similar to that. So adoptive families build profiles and then expectant moms sort through those profiles based on what's most important to them. Mm -hmm. Can it go both directions? No, only because um, there are so many more adopting families than there are expectant moms. And so- Oh, they would be like hoarded. They would be like inundated. Yeah. Yeah. And are they um, anonymous until they match? They're anonymous until they reach out and then then they can just kind of unlock more information about themselves as Mm. as they're feeling comfortable. And is there a prerequisite as far as what they have to disclose or is it like dating where- you can stay kind of like, hey, we're just having coffee and then lunch and then maybe a dinner and a, you know. It's the latter. It's more like dating. That's so fascinating. We go through, we do, I mean, um, one of the problems in adoption are people will pose as expectant moms to get time, money, or attention out of adoptive families. And so we we do ask our expectant moms to go through a couple processes to verify that they are who they say they are. Um, so that we can kind of weed out any of the bad apples, but um, yeah, for, for the most part, and then they, we have a messaging platform. So they message back and forth with each other until they decide like, yes, you're for me and you're for me. And and then they, we have a, a network of the very best adoption attorneys in all 50 States that we recommend them to, if they're not already working with someone. That's fascinating. And do you do analysis or anything on like why people expectant mothers are parting ways with their baby and does that matter to the kind of decision to match? Yeah, so I think a lot of people think birth moms are super young or they're in high school and and they're just not. The average age is 24 to 36 and they already have one kid. So they know how hard it is to be a parent and they know, so they can't like, younger people typically we see them like kind of romanticize parenting, like this will be great. And, you know, anyone that's a parent knows like, Yes, there are those parts, but it's also very, very hard day to day. So most birth mm. moms are like they they're older, they're already a mom, and they know that they don't have the resources to do it again. And for whatever reason, they don't believe in terminating. Yeah, religious or just their own. Yeah. So interesting. And the first part that you talked about in the three steps, the filling out the crazy amounts of paperwork. Mm-hmm. What? what kind of stuff do you have to disclose? Do you have to disclose your finance, financial situation and your ethnicity and like what's in that packet? Oh, it's like a super in-depth interview. So you have to disclose, I mean, your autobiographical history, kind of your family of origin, like how did you grow up? Um, What are your connections to your extended family? And if there's two of you adopting, you're both doing this. Um, you have to provide personal references, typically three to five employer references. You have to get a physical from a doctor to make sure you are um, healthy enough to be parenting financial information. So tax returns, you have to be FBI background checked, go through child abuse and neglect background checks. Oh my goodness. It's pretty, it's pretty. And that's why 
a lot of people, one of the things that we saw as an opportunity in this industry as a whole was a lot of people would be like, yeah, I want to adopt. And then they look into it and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is yeah, it feels too vulnerable and too disclosing. Yeah. And, and so, so we, yeah, we, interesting. That's why we tried to make the process to be approved to adopt much more efficient and streamlined. So people aren't concentrating on all the administrative junk and they can just concentrate on, you know, why they want to parent. Yeah. So interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what exactly is the business model? How do you make money? Uh, so two primary ways. So one, uh, you know, and they, they align to our product. So the first one is a uh, home study that, so families pay us a couple thousand dollars to go through that process. Um, and then we, we pay the providers that are the actual home study providers, the social workers that are helping families step through that. Um, and then the second one is on matching. So where a lot of agencies will charge, you know, $25,000 to match somebody, we, we decided like, let's just charge a monthly subscription fee. So we, so families pay $75 a month to have a, an online profile for as long as they need. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And is that um, profitable? Yeah. That's amazing. It's, it's so you, you bootstrapped this business, right? Well, we bootstrapped. It's one of the reasons I started Facet was because uh, I was like, honey, I've got this idea and uh, I'll pay for it, you know, in terms of, and so I, all the money that I made at Facet went to starting Pear Tree. Um, but I love it. Such a badass entrepreneur. <laughs> and how did you have the intuition and confidence to do it? What type of market research did you do? Well, I, I did, I want to, let's just back up. The first adoption that we went through our family, um, that's when I think the idea just kind of jumped into my head because like, this is way too. Right. Important. There's got to be a better way. Yes. And so that's when it just was kind of nagging in the back of my head for around six years. And then when we went through our second one with our daughter, same thing. Um, and then we started, I just started pro bono helping families go through it. Um, mm. And every time it was like the same thing, like, really, that's how it's done. I'm like, I know feels like the wild west, doesn't it? And, and so I just like, at a certain point, I was like, okay, I need, this needs to be better and, and I need to do it. And so um, I started doing, well, research to make sure the market size would, you know, be worthy of a business. And it right. is. There's well, clearly there's how many people are, are looking right now? Yeah. Or, well, there's about 5 million in the U.S. and that's expected to go up to 7 million by 2025 because the infertility rate is going up. And that's why venture capital is dumping money into reproductive technology. And, you know, we're kind of the next step. Like people yeah. get, go through a certain amount of reproductive technology and they, they just they hit their breaking point for whatever reason. They move into our world. Interesting. Wow. And how did you find your co-founder, Justin? Is he still with you? Yeah, he's wonderful. Um, so he, well, so long story short, so I did all the market research and I started talking to VCs because I didn't want to bootstrap it. Um, but then pandemic hit, I had all my VC meetings lined up for the first week of March of 2020. Oh, of course. Which is bad timing. So I was like, well, I'll build it, get some traction and then go talk to VCs. Which is better anyway, because you yeah. can have like proof of concept, beta test it, kind of see if there's interest. Yeah, and um, I, I was introduced to Jacob Kolker at the Allen Institute. Who runs yes, the I love Jacob. Yes, he's wonderful. And he's like, you know, you should maybe, well, he introduced me to a couple other folks who all said you should go talk to tech stars and, and go through an accelerator. And so I did, I applied, I got in and, um, it was some of those investor conversations early that uh, led to Justin. And they're like, there's a CTO that you should talk to. Because uh, I'm a non-technical founder and I needed a technical co-founder. Um, oh, yeah, for theory. sure. To go build out the whole platform and product. Yeah. Yeah. So Justin and I, we, we met, we started talking for about four months. Um, it took me a while to convince him. I think once I got into Techstars, he was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, there's a certain like stamp of approval for yeah, sure. Yeah, but it's like, hey, leave your you know job with benefits and I can't pay you. But what if we change the world of adoption? Yeah. You know, what if we make this world a better place? And so, and he he fully subscribes to that. So he he did, he, he left his- Yeah, I love that. And what was your personal vetting process? Because when people have co-founders, I'm always interested in learning how they decide that not just, hey, I'm non-tech, you're tech, 
but also we want the same things. This is what we're thinking about from a culture standpoint and the whole story, like everything that you're facing right now. Did you guys vet each other or just trust? No, I mean, we talked early and deep about values and culture and, you know, what we want it to be out the gate and what we're hoping for. And, and also a kind of division of roles and responsibilities. Like I will do this, Mm. but you need to do this. And, and then there was for sure. I mean, just like any marriage, there was just kind of a, a, a level of trust. Yeah, there needs to be because it's all like rolling the dice. And I'm not sure what the statistics are as far as, I mean, obviously marriage is like 50-50 and divorce, but like yeah. founders, I don't know, but I do hear stories because we work with so many startups of, you know, it not working out. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I think- So do, a- do you guys have competitors? We have competitors that touch on aspects of our business, but no one, no one that we know about yet has been looking at adoption as comprehensively as we have. Yeah. Just being one company to help families navigate from start to, you know, we say from start to forever. Yeah. Interesting. And so it's a subscription-based model where these families are paying 75. And what about once they match? Is there a fee on top of that? We don't. And a lot of the industry. Oh my gosh. Wow. I know, because we feel like that feels like a bounty. Except and so we're like, no, right. it's like, you can get a goat for my baby. Like it, yeah, yeah. it's like a trade kind of platform. Interesting. Yeah. So wow. it's very, it makes it way more affordable for sure. Which yeah. your earlier point is one of the ways that we think will make it more equitable. Like, you know, for a long time, adoption has only been an option to people with wealth. And so in bringing the, the fees down, it makes it available. Yeah. People. yeah. So this whole fundraising process, there's the idea that it was not going to happen successfully during COVID. And of course it did. We're feeling that as a recruiting firm. Um, but did you do all of this over Zoom and how much have you raised? Yeah. So we've, we, uh, coming out of Techstars, well, we thought we were going to have a really hard time because people were going to think of us as like a nonprofit. And I was going to talk to them about, about my ovaries and <laughs> like, this is not going to be easy for us. Right. And you're pitching mostly to men. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I was like, oh man, this is going to be tough. And it could not have been more opposite. We would get on, it was, it, it was height of COVID. So everything was on zoom but we'd get on these zoom calls with VCs and, you know, I came out the gate with a very vulnerable, vulnerable story. And within minutes, you know, we've had most VCs like, Oh, my wife and I are going through that right now, or my best friend is going through that. And so it was pretty, it was way more relatable than I thought it was going to be. So we were lucky. We, we raised in under two months from graduating Techstars, we raised 2.25 for our pre-seed. Wow. That was in July of 2021. And then around the holidays, we actually got preempted by this awesome firm um, who just led our seed round that we closed um, end of March. Oh. And so we closed 5.1 million. On top of the two? Oh my gosh. And that money is going to be used for what? Primarily the expansion of the home study product. That's such a huge opportunity. And then one of the things that's happening in the world today that we are also expanding into is embryo donors. So when families are going through IVF, like they are today, and they have extra embryos that come out of their process, um, they have the options to discard them or to donate them. And I think this is really, really cool, but it used to be that they'd be like, yeah, donate them to a family that needs them. And it was completely anonymous, but thanks to 23andMe, there is no more anonymous donation. So uh, embryo donor families are playing a role in choosing the families that their embryos go to. And oh that's just like adoption. This is crazy powerful stuff. Yeah. I love this conversation. <laughs> so you've raised a ton of money. The fundraising process was pretty easy, um, especially even during COVID. All things that in my mind, the wind is not at your back, but it turned out that it was. Yeah. And you have um, female VCs also involved. Yeah, we do. Well, um, Leslie Fines Egg from Grandma Walker. She, mm-hmm. she, we met her in TechStars, and I tell people that you know I was, I was. Well, this happened with our the lead of our pre-seed too, who are also two women. It's Urban Innovation Fund. Yeah, they both, um, they're moms, and they both within five minutes of meeting them on Zoom, 
were asking us questions about what the product could be that were on our roadmap for about for five years down the road. They got it immediately. Uh, so that's, that's amazing. Been- Leslie's awesome. She's a good friend and uh, I'm not surprised. She's smart and her, she's got good intuitive instincts. She's also intimidating. She, uh, when oh, I was really like, well, not now, but I, when I was meeting with her because she is so smart. Yeah. And she has such a direct. But she's so warm and um, very. Yeah. yeah I'm, she, glad that, I'm glad that you have her involved. And tell me, do you have a board? We do, but it's small right now. So it's just uh, Justin, my co-founder, myself, and then uh, Julie from Urban Innovation Fund, who is our, the yeah. lead of our pre-seed. Yeah. Well, that's great. Probably me. better to keep it small so yeah. that you can kind of drive things a little bit more. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So tell me a little bit more about the numbers. I think that in researching this whole business, I, I didn't realize the statistics. Um, so how many adoptive families do you currently have on the platform? Right now we have around 210. Nice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and how do you get about, how do you go about, I mean, you're a branding person. How do you um, I guess, get in front of the families and expectant mothers? Is there partnerships or you just go like, like, how do you know who's, a, who's <laughs> on either side? Yeah, so it's different dynamics for the kind of user type. For adoptive yeah. families, we actually partnered with a lot of the adoption attorneys in the US okay, um, and a lot of adoption agencies. So agencies, even though they're charging more money, they a lot of them know that or contractually require their families to do some of their own outreach. So they recommend families use Pear Tree. Um, same thing with the adoption attorneys. Um, and then adopt, or adopting families, the, they do their research. Like they are researched in terms of options. So they find us. Yeah. So you're working on SEO? For sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, often. Yeah. That's and, SEO and as, yeah. Oh, of course. And so as far as the matching process, I did read that you kind of implemented personality archetypes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we do personality-based matching. And that, one of the other things that happens in adoption today that people just don't know about is that uh, 90% of adoptions are open. So adopting family and birth family or adopting family and embryo donor family will be together and connected for the rest of their lives. And so- So they can get to know the the kids. Yeah, and that, I mean, and all of the research says that that will create a healthier identity in the adoptee. Um, which is what we all care the most about. Um, yeah. And is that it, your personal situation? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. We have, and are, they, are your are your children from the same mother? No, totally separate families. And so you're involved. Both of these birth mothers are involved with your kids. Yes, and fathers. Yeah. Wow. And so, how, what does that and, and look like? Is it like Christmas and Easter, or if you're Jewish, like the Jewish holidays? Like what? <laughs> What is it, or is it like, hey, you can come to the baseball game? Uh, it's whatever you decide you want it to be. So we have one birth family who we are in touch with via email a couple times a year. And we have another birth family who come visit. We send presents back and forth. We text with them on a weekly basis. So it's it's literally, you know, we just had our first FaceTime call so that our daughter could meet her half siblings. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. So it's, and so, it's, so you know, this personality kind of assessment, how did you decide which one to use? And what does, why is that part of the process? Yeah. So personality is the leading indicator of behavior. And so our expectant moms, that's why they come to a pear tree is because they want to be able to see like into the future. Like if I pick you, what does the future look like with you? Um, and so, but so many of the profile sites were just, you know, like pretty pictures and that was it. And so we wanted to, we wanted to incorporate some kind of personality-based matching for expectant moms so that they had some meatier information on these adoptive families to decide who they even wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. Do you have the adopt, do you have the expectant moms also do the personality assessment to see if there's correlations? They don't, we're, we're launching the first um, adoption platform in a, in a month or two and that will be an available option for expectant moms. But a lot of times they know what they want. They knew what they wanted. They just didn't have the words. And so with Carl, with you know Carl Jung's behavioral 
none of the personality types are bad. They're just all very different. So if a expectant mom is like, I want my baby to, and this has happened, like I've never been on a plane. I want my baby to be on a plane and travel and see the world. And you're like, oh, well, that's the explorer personality type. Here's all those families. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so how many do you know that personality assessment well enough to kind of give us a couple of different ideas around it? I'm sure you do, but yeah. yeah. Well, we're actually getting to the point where I'm almost, I would almost feel confident saying that, you know, with a high level of confidence, we can predict people that are more likely to adopt based on this personality test, because there are a few personalities that really rise to the top in terms of people that are looking to adopt, or at least there's a, there's a set of characteristics that. And what are those? I I won't give you the actual statistics, but there's two archetypes. There's one's the neighbor and one's the caregiver um, that I've I've done it before. And I think I'm the caregiver. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, see, then you probably have it in you somewhere that you would be open to this idea of adoption. I I say it all the time only because I want more babies and I'm 50, so I can't do that. But like, I also feel like I can't take a baby away from somebody who can't have children. Like it feels selfish a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, but we have, there's expectant moms that only are looking for families that have kids because they want to make sure their kid is, has siblings. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But we have expectant moms, you know, choose parents for a variety. I mean, there's expectant moms that chose a dentist because she had bad teeth and she thought her kid might have bad teeth. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. This is a whole thing. And so are you open to taking kids who have been exposed to like a mom that's got an addiction to drugs? And, you know, what about if those moms come onto the site? What do you do? Yeah. I mean, we, we allow it and it's up to the adoptive families to determine that, not us. Yeah. And so we, what we do is we provide a lot of education yeah. to adoptive families and we're about to offer even more, but um, a lot of education around, you know, like what happens if there's some, been some stuff, some substance abuse. Right. Um, Interesting. So, but yeah, we, I mean, we asked and make sure it's disclosed. Yeah. That's important. Probably I'm guessing like, obviously, um, so it sounds like there's definitely some differentiators, um, between you and your competitors. What specifically, I guess, makes you different? So for sure, the personality-based matching, um, makes us different, but the other two that are worth noting is we are a carrot fertility partner. So in a perfect world, we think these adoption journeys should be covered by insurance benefits. And so um, our kind of first step towards that was partnering with Carrot. So all of our fees are reimbursable if a company uses um, Carrot for their family building benefits. And then the other thing that's worth mentioning is um, we started something from day one called the 5% Fund. So 5% of all of our fees go to organizations that support lifetime healing for birth moms. That's amazing continues to inspire. I love it. Yeah. So getting back, getting back to your fundraising and raising all this money, like how are you planning to compete in this crazy, uh, war on talent for kind of product development and engineering? I'm guessing those are going to be big. Well, it, it is big and <laughs> we are competing. I mean, engineers so hard, especially in Seattle, because we can't compete with Facebook salaries and Amazon salaries. Um, what we do have, which I think has worked to our favor, is we have this, you know, pretty strong mission that people, and you can almost see it on when we're meeting with them, that they are like in on the mission. Yeah. Well, it's it's a lot of people's priority and having done this for almost 30 years, which makes me like old lady, but whatever, I've done it for a long time and people's um, drivers have changed as far yeah. as how they make decisions and the pandemic has amplified that. Um, it's not always about comp. Of, of course, this market's become nuts with, you know, like Amazon and Twitter and all the companies having their engineering based here. But a lot of people come in and say they just want a mission based company. So yeah. what makes somebody, I guess, a culture fit or culture ad for your company? We, so it's kind of three things that, that we look for on a regular basis. You have to be able to like move fast and be in startup culture. Like this is not like we don't have processes and frameworks built. Like you're going to have to help us build those. And so if that's the world that you like living in, awesome. Um, ethics. So we say like, if we don't have ethics in this industry, we have nothing. Because there's a lot of bad apples that got into adoption just to make money. And yeah. 
And so we're like, we're not shortcutting anything. If it doesn't, if it's not the right thing to do, we're not doing it, whether investors like it or not. Um, and then the, the third one is just, we call it fierce optimism. Yeah. You have to have like fierce optimism in this industry. Um, and, you know, to, to, cause you hear a lot of bad stories. You hear a lot of wonderful, good stories, but you hear like people are like, wow, that is a new level of low that I did not know existed. Right. I mean, even on this podcast, my mouth has been like, you know, dropped that there's yeah. fake expectant mothers and just all yeah. of the things that you have to navigate. So yeah. what are the long-term plans for the business? And I'm not going to ask you about your exit strategy because that's so annoying when people ask it. I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm really passionate about what I'm building and I'm not thinking about that. Um, but I am curious about, I'm guessing you just want to dominate the industry. Yeah. So I think what we say is we want where multiple family trees are coming together. We want to be at the center of those journeys. So surrogacy, egg donor, sperm donor, embryo donor, adoption. I think for us, that's kind of where we see the world um, going. And, you know, that has been the more unconventional way of building a family. And we see that for sure becoming the more conventional way to build a family in the future. Yeah. Well, so you've got these kids, eight and five. You're building this awesome company. How do you find time for you, which your mental health, and what do you do to kind of unwind, relax in general? It goes back to my rom-coms my, and my jam. <laughs> you can just escape into the movie. I love it. I do. So I like that's, I, our life is insane from about 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. Just yeah. insane work parenting. And then at 8 p.m., my husband and I, have a little bit of a time to ourselves. And if we don't like start working again, which is sad, but it happens a lot. Um, yeah. I and will- so with these kids, like what's your dream weekend, or I guess even a, just a typical weekend, are they also sporty spice or what are they into? They're super sporty. My eight-year-old super sporty and my five-year-old is getting there, but she's just crazy creative. Yeah. Uh, and they both love music. And so for me, I love just like pajamas until 11 and pancakes and not doing anything. Cause that is rare for us. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I never listen to parenting like books or, if, you know, I'm not one of those. I just kind of go with my gut. And recently I've been listening to a book on Audible about parenting and they talk about just being. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm over the top process, execute, not process, but like executing on tasks. And then I drive them, which is yeah. typical of being a mom of teenagers. Mm-hmm. And they just were like, the dream is to just be, even if you're just watching a movie together. So I love that answer. It's so good. I'm an efficiency junkie too. Like I plan yes. to go out in the grocery store. And if Me I'm not too. like ordering groceries while the kids are in the bathtub or something like that, like yeah. I just, I don't feel my old. parents were just with me for the weekend and my mom and I are in the mall and I'm shopping and I'm pre-ordering stuff at another store and I'm getting our <laughs> Starbucks at the, this thing. And I'm talking on the phone and she's like, Oh my, my parents were like, what is happening? You're doing too much. But that's me in my element. I got to say when people criticize it, like you're just, you do too much. I'm like, well, that's me, at least in this chapter of my life, you know, there will be a season to chill, but it's not right now. (laughs) Even when I'm rom-coming, I'm still folding laundry. Oh, of course. Of course. Or even like, I'm going to get on the bike while I'm rom-coming or I'm going to. I'm cooking tomorrow's dinner now while I have my earbuds in watching Jane Austen. Yes. I love it. I find you like super relatable, also inspiring. I'm curious. My ultimate question is what fuels you? Oh, um, I, I, well, honestly, like I'm probably like one of the most grateful people you'll ever meet. And that probably stemmed from, you know, being on feeling like when you have a dad that's dying, like you're grateful for every day. And so I'm sure exponentially grateful and so when I see people do things for other people or I see something wonderful like that I mean it it lifts me for days thank you for listening to the what fuels you podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review on iTunes Google Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes you can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.